Welcome to Talking Infrastructure, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by global infrastructure company, ACOM. In this series, we'll be discussing the hot topics, key projects and innovations that are helping to solve some of the world's most complex infrastructure challenges. Hello and welcome to ACOM's Talking Infrastructure podcast. My name is James Banks and I'm Head of External Relations in Europe, the Middle East and Africa for ACOM. Today, we're going to be talking about resilience, in particular, the resilience of our towns and cities. Even before the coronavirus pandemic, the idea that we need to make our towns and cities more resilient was growing. From ageing and deficient infrastructure to the challenges of climate change and population growth, it's widely acknowledged that we are underprepared to meet the increasingly unpredictable challenges of today. To discuss how to address this problem and to look at how we can make changes to prepare ourselves for the unknown, I'm joined by three guests from Dublin, New York and San Francisco. Firstly, Angela Ryan, Water Supply and Resources Strategy Specialist at Irish Water. Caitlin McLean, Senior Director of Innovative Finance at the Milken Institute. And Stephen Engblom, ACOM's Global Cities Director. Welcome, everybody. Hello. Hello, James. So, Stephen, if I can come to you first of all, what are we talking about here? What do we mean when we talk about resilience? Thanks for the question, James, and uh, thanks for having me on this show. So, resilience is how well our cities respond to both short-term shocks and endure long-term stresses. These can manifest themselves in physical infrastructure impacts, but also in the way that our communities are impacted in their health and threats to our natural environments. Uh, One thing I always like to say is that we have to find ways to convey this story and different people hear stories in different ways. So, you know, we talk about appealing to hearts, minds and wallets. And we've been working globally on this topic with the 100 Resilient Cities Network, now called the Resilient Cities Catalyst. And for the past five years, as you say, you know, we've been thinking about the how the policy that we need to set in place. And now really the world is pivoting to how to start to implement some of these policies that we know well. So that resilience really is going to have to show up in the way that we budget and think about cost and benefit of infrastructure. But also we have to start thinking about the environmental impacts and also equity impacts. Caitlin, resilience, what does it mean to you? Certainly. I think that, and thank you for having me on. So happy to be here. I think I would just add two things to what Stephen said. So, you know, it's interesting during this pandemic, you know, having folks check in and say, you know, how are you doing? Are you surviving? Are you thriving? And actually, that's what we talk about when we're thinking through resilience and what that means. And so we're all talking to each other at an individual level. But truly, that is both individual and at a community level. Are we surviving and are we thriving? And I think the only other you know, component of resilience, I think, that I would add on to what Stephen was saying is certainly what many of us across the globe are feeling, which is an economic stressor, right? So I think um, Stephen was mentioning, how does this affect your checkbook? And certainly at the Institute, uh, what we look at is, is not only the physical infrastructure, the social infrastructure and the community need, uh, but also the long-term access to capital and, and job creation component of that to ensure that kind of long-term mitigation against any stressors. And Angela, for Irish Water, when you talk about resilience, is it just around the physical infrastructure? Absolutely not, James. Uh, in terms of the physical infrastructure, 
uh, we have externalities that impact our ability to operate and develop our asset base and maintain levels of service to meet our customers' needs. So uh, I think what we're looking at is the ability to adapt to foreseen and unforeseen change and potentially multiple, potentially cumulative challenges and to do that in a sustainable way. So in terms of the external factors, as Stephen uh, was saying there, there are the environmental factors. So our water supplies are dependent on abstractions of water from a natural environment. How will those um, natural water bodies perform in terms of foreseen and unforeseen change? And the investments we make in our infrastructure, are those investments adaptable to change? So when we have our long-term plans to invest in our infrastructure, are we looking at the right things? Have we identified all of the risks? And for those unforeseen risks, are our plans and strategies adaptable to those risks? You mentioned the unforeseen. It must be very difficult. I mean, clearly, it must be very difficult to plan for. What are the sort of things that we're trying to protect ourselves against? Angela, if I can stay with you on that one. So in terms of the things we're trying to protect ourselves against, obviously there are changes such as we've got growth and economic development, but also deterioration of the natural environment and climate change. And although there is extensive research into climate change, it's really to get the focus on that. What does that mean at a local level in terms of our asset base? How will we reflect those great things that are happening at an atmospheric level? down to our asset base. What are the ranges of things we need to look out for? What are the most resilient uh, things we can build into our infrastructure? So looking at pieces like conjunctive use of uh, water resources, uh, ensuring that we're able to move water around our systems uh, with more flexibility, interconnectivity, understanding that those patterns might change in certain areas. So it's taking all of those things that have many, many moving parts and trying to say, well, this is the likely thing that might happen. What are all of the unlikely things that could happen? And do our plans cater enough for those items that might not be the things we expect to happen, but maybe the things that actually do? Stephen, from an ACOM perspective, obviously we work with, we work with a lot of different clients. What are the challenges that our, our clients are presenting to us when it comes to resilience? Well, I think that, you know, I'll go back to that sort of shocks and stressors so that the sort of we know what the stresses in our systems are. And it's interesting to think about those resilience uh, strategies that uh, we've developed over the years. Things even like, you know, right now, I think a lot of people took the pandemic as a surprise. Right. But in many of the uh, city's strategies, those were there. They just weren't really elevated to the highest of uh, priorities. So it's been fascinating to think about how we've pivoted to dealing with this pandemic globally. I think two things really jumped out at me is that typically these resilience strategies around the world had certain categories of the things that, you know, using the last exchange about things that we expect and are dealing with, and then things that are surprises or the shocks. Around the world, we might have had, you know, sort of a, a hurricane season in one area or fire and, and burning seasons in the other, or we might have had a shock like a terrorist attack in a city. So cities had plans for those. But what's been really fascinating about the pandemic is that all at once around the world, everybody was dealing with the same thing. I think in, in hindsight, we could also say that that's probably true for the inequities. I, I would say that simmering right beneath the surface in everything we do 
in every city around the world, there is some form of you know global inequity discussion that is something that really, really are being forced to address now. It's been this great sort of leveler, like sort of forcing us to deal with these issues in a faster and in a more abrupt way than we had been willing to do before. Caitlin, what's what's your view of the reaction during the the pandemic? And obviously, we are still very much going through it. But is it too early for us to talk about lessons learned? Well, I think that there's some emerging lessons, right? So I think what we've seen, um, and just to build on what Stephen was saying, I think what we've found is that everyone is realizing that if before cities had plans to protect their communities at this kind of individual level or at an individual asset level in terms of a piece of infrastructure, what they're realizing now is that the interconnectedness of communities also needs to be a priority in terms of their, their planning. And so I think that one of the lessons learned coming out of this, I hope, is that as we're thinking about kind of building back better, that cities and and states and countries around the world are really taking into account and in, into their planning the interconnectedness of the communities. You know, we we did a project with AECOM actually here. Uh, I'm based in New York, in New York City, looking at coastal resiliency. And one of the challenges we found was having people think not only about their own particular building or their own particular apartment, but the community at large, because there are community assets and community value that is threatened when we are going through these these shocks and stressors. So I think that, you know, what we're seeing as an emerging lesson, hopefully, is that people going forward will look not only at their own individuality, but also at a community level, kind of what we need to be more resilient. So hopefully that's a lesson learned that we're taking away and we can build back better thinking not only about issues around climate, but as Stephen said, issues around social justice and, and inequity. So I think the sharp laser focus that everyone is feeling, as I mentioned about just surviving or thriving, hopefully will uh, allow us to build back better. Angela, looking at through sort of Irish water lens, if you if you will, has it sharpened focus on resilience? Are there any lessons that that you'd be willing to discuss? Uh, lessons learned? Uh, absolutely, I think it's inevitably uh, sharpens focus on resilience, and um, because all of these large shocks that can happen. Uh, we don't expect them to happen. They happen very infrequently, but they have happened now. And I, I think there's lessons learned there in terms of the reactions of the populations to that. But within Irish Water, it's how we've managed the supply chain and the logistics in ensuring continuity to water services. Um, we have a staff quorum there with 790 water treatment plants. We've managed to keep supplies to all of our customers over this period. Uh, even earlier this summer, we had a little bit of a drought in this country as well. So we had one little shock uh, with one big shock there, and it was managing those things conjunctively together. And again, I think we did that with relatively good success. Uh, we had very few interruptions to customer supplies. So I think we'll take that and we'll look at it and we'll look to improve upon it. And again, I would see that we can we can feed back those lessons into those larger shocks that may happen in the future, particularly uh, the shocks which will impact water supply most, which will be a uh, change in population and the amount of water we can abstract from the natural environment. Has the acceleration of, um, of innovation, I and mean, we talk about this a lot, Angela, has this helped? I mean, we're, obviously, we're all now very 
proficient at working from home and dialing in through Teams and having video calls every half an hour. But how has how has innovation helped you tackle this problem? Obviously, everybody has become a little bit of an expert at Teams and Zoom and all of all of these good platforms. But I, w- I would say that we've almost taken a, a working in the office place environment and tried to just bolt that into working from home. And we had to do that because it happened so suddenly. Uh, one week we were working in an office environment and the next week we were working from home. And I do think that maybe we have to sit back and take a look, review with that and not miss an opportunity to investigate whether there's more efficient uh, models of working as well that we could use. So we now have all of the tools to work from home, but are we just working in exactly the same way or are there any changes and modifications that we can make to our ways of working that will actually improve efficiency? Stephen, I just wonder if you build on that point. What have you found has been helpful? How do you think that society is going to change and what are the challenges that lie ahead off the back of the, the pandemic? Well, I think this um, economic and social crisis coming to a head has really forced some, I, I think one of the, the most significant changes I've seen is a willingness to work across agencies and across jurisdictions to try and find ways to do more with less. And so I know here in the Bay Area, we've been running a series of uh, webinars with our transit agencies in the equivalent size of Greater London, where you have one Transport for London system. Here in the Bay Area, we have uh, 26 different transit agencies, and that, you could imagine, has a lot of inefficiencies in it. So what's really been very helpful is trying to get these global lessons to apply from one area, like Transport for London was very generous with their time to explain some lessons learned some very innovative things they're doing with their bike program, which TFL happens to control. But here in the Bay Area, that's, of course, controlled by a different agency. So there wasn't really built-in incentives to work across those different modes. So that kind of breaking down silos between agencies, I think, is critically important so that we can find ways to, Caitlin used this idea about emerging through into a better normal. You know, we need to be able to accommodate that population growth that you talked about at the beginning. How do we keep our economy competitive? We need to get people out of cars and into uh, transit at a time when people are genuinely afraid of the health risks. So the other thing that I would say that, you know, the importance of our physical infrastructure agencies to be working with uh, health agencies, I think has really jumped to maybe a very obvious point, maybe we should have been thinking about that, but I would say that the way that the health officials across municipalities have risen to prominence in dealing with this and not having to deal with, oftentimes infrastructure is very political and health is something that has, for the most part, at least in the local parlance, has has been able to sort of allow uh, people to work across state lines or across municipality lines in ways that transit agencies in the past have been more reticent to do. You mentioned there the key work and key phrase was, you know, should have perhaps been working more collaboratively beforehand. But clearly, surely that is the big challenge, isn't it? I mean, how do we predict what lies ahead? How do you try and plan for the unknown? I would think there the only certainty in life is uncertainty. And uh, what I would see is that uh, we've got to give consideration of the widest range of challenges uh, because if the focus is too narrow uh, like that, we're we're likely to miss something. Uh, So I think uh, we need to to look at all 
potential eventualities, all possible shocks that come through the system. I, I think the pandemic has shown us that even those low probability shocks actually do happen there. But also, I think what we need to do is understand the cumulative impact uh, as well of challenges happening at the same time. One thing I would say, one, one way to sort of deal with that sort of unpredictability is to actually just get more people involved in the dialogue. And I think I'm, I'm optimistic about that on a couple fronts. One is there's a, a rise of a community-based organizations getting involved in our urban planning and urban infrastructure strategies. For many decades, we've had sort of a top-down, bureaucratic down. We know how to engineer our way through and develop and build the right cities. But that doesn't win over the hearts and minds that I was talking about before. It doesn't appeal to those uh, people who may not care about this except for their wallets. So we need to get more people involved in the dialogue. The mayor of Oakland recently said something that I really liked is that she was announcing a new plan that was community-led, government-followed. And I think that that's uh, getting people to be involved in urban planning and, and think about the fact that it really does affect them all. I just got off a call about uh, the National Building Code in uh, the United States, and unbelievably, many states across the U.S. don't actually have a advanced building code. A lot of times, people don't know that their states don't have an advanced building code, so they don't really have an opinion about it. But when they realize that they don't have any protective building codes, they all of a sudden start caring about it. So it's about messaging, getting people involved. That will help us to create a more resilient approach to urban planning. To go back to Stephen's point there about getting people involved, water, I think, is often seen as a bit of a forgotten utility. What are the challenges for you to make sure that you're getting communities involved to be part of that plan? And again, that is, you are right there. It is often the forgotten utility. I think it's getting people to understand that the water we use in our taps it does come from the environment as well. So we all have a part to play in ensuring resilience of our water supplies, particularly in terms of water conservation and only using what we absolutely require in terms of water supplies. I don't think it can be a case of always building, building, building. I think we've got to start to learn to use water more efficiently across uh, communities. Irish water would be involved in a number of water stewardship initiatives uh, where we go into companies and businesses uh, looking at audits uh, of those companies and businesses, seeing if we can work with major water users to reduce consumption. Similarly, water conservation messaging uh, across populations that this is all of our water supply and we all have a part to play in that. The natural environment is also dependent on water, so we have the interface back to that as well. So again, I think it has tentacles reaching into that financial and funding piece as well. There is a funding challenge there in terms of our water infrastructure. If we can all be a little bit leaner about the water that we can use, it reduces that funding challenge and we can invest in the right things at the right time. Caitlin, let's talk about money. How do we fund the unknown? How do we protect ourselves against something that, that might essentially never happen? I think that what Angela just said is is exactly right. So I think the question is right now, especially during this pandemic where we have seen uh, such economic stress and uncertainty, then how do you stretch the dollars to ensure that agencies like Angela's are nimble enough and prepared enough to react? 
So they don't necessarily need to be ready for every single possible thing that could ever happen so much as they are able to react when something does happen and able to shift what they need depending on on the situation. So I think the challenge that we have is, you know, looking at Stephen mentioned San Francisco. So you look at the state of California, which coming into this year had a twenty one billion dollar surplus and is now facing a fifty four billion dollar deficit. So I think what we're hoping is that necessity drives innovation, that there can be innovation in the funding and financing. And we understand certainly that there's going to be budgetary shortfalls at a national level and here in the U.S. at a state and local level, certainly. And hopefully that means that we can be more creative in thinking through the ability to invest early into preparedness so that we are not spending so much during relief and recovery. So just thinking about some stats and some numbers, you know, the Pew Charitable Trust did a report where they looked at disaster preparedness and said $1 invested in preparedness results in 6 to $7 in savings. So when you aggregate that up and you're saying if you could invest $1 billion now, you will save 6 to $7 billion later. And so I think that that's the mindset I think that we need to be in. Again, having this necessity of having very little funding coming in for the public sector to try to really be creative and, and smart about how they're spending that those dollars. And I think that there's also a private sector moment for this as well, right? So you see Citibank came out saying that they were going to initiate a $250 billion pledge goal towards environmental finance. So thinking about uh, water, actually, to Angela's point, uh, water systems, uh, sustainable transportation, green buildings, renewable energy. So we're seeing the private sector step up and, and we can see where there might be more creative models for public-private partnerships, given the, the kind of limited dollar amounts coming in from a public sector component. Certainly, if you look at, uh, for example, the state of New York had a, a an environmental bond act this year is about three billion dollars and they just had to postpone it because of the crisis. So who can step in in the meantime? And hopefully we don't lose momentum about trying to get that preparedness by having either more creative use of public funds or uh, a supplement or a complement from the private sector. Interesting. Steve, I know that you've, you've been working with Caitlin a lot on, on, on these exact topics. And I think you mentioned something about the insurance industry could be part of the puzzle. Yeah, and, and last year at the Financial Innovation Lab that Caitlin ran in New York, we were looking at that exact issue. And during that workshop, the insurance industry was brought up. And so to the point that in New York State, there's, what was it, Caitlin, $28 billion a year in property and casualty insurance. So the idea was floated, what if we were to put 2% on top of that? Would the marketplace be willing to accept that so that the state could start doing those proactive investments for the resilient infrastructure that we know would help save those insurance companies money later on when they were, you know, instead of having to pay for the policy to rebuild, they would actually be investing proactively. So until that time, so I think that's one thing to keep your eye on is, is how the insurance agency steps into this discussion or the insurance industry, how they get involved. I think a couple other industries that I've been really keen on, on watching sort of long term, you know, if you think about over the past 100 years, how have we paid for infrastructure? Your usual suspects are things like real estate impact fees or uh, sales tax. So we sort of tax things like consumer goods or 
having to do with the fact that over the past 100 years, the biggest industry in the world was the oil and gas industry. So we had things like gas tax that would help pay for infrastructure. I think that now we, we need to reset that and start thinking about what are the biggest economies in the world right now. So I think that there's a lot of uh, talk about some sort of digital dividend. So how can we do some sort of data tax that would help to pay for this? Now, there are certain small models about sort of micro payments to help pay for mobility infrastructure. But I think really there's going to need to be some really big shifts in the way that the biggest economies in the world, how they're evolving. There's always a natural relationship between those big economies having to pay for infrastructure. And that's where I started this whole conversation is that, you know, infrastructure, we have to remember, is a framework for economic development. It is a framework for population growth. So we, we need to set that correctly. Sorry, I was just going to add to what Stephen was saying in terms of, you know, looking at the types of financial services that hopefully uh, will shift and, and take these lessons learned from the pandemic. You know, I think that there's a role to play for rating agencies in this conversation. So, in, you know, obviously around the world, but certainly here in the United States, the municipalities and states that are going out to the market to raise money to pay for these infrastructure projects and certainly on the corporate side as well, you know, looking for capital in, in the markets have to go to rating agencies, right, to assess their risk and therefore determine what price, what what interest rates they are having to charge for the market. So, you know, I think that there's a component to understanding now more than ever how vulnerable our communities are and that there are additional metrics and data that need to be factored into what rating agencies do day to day, looking at companies and the public sector to factor in a lot of these stressors and shocks that we've been talking about that historically have not been integrated into any sort of financial analysis. And clearly there is a financial component there. These factors are material to our financial health, as we are seeing right now, as I mentioned, California with their deficit now, that's certainly a factor in their overall budget. So I think that I would just add, I think that there's a variety of different actors and stakeholders in this space that really need to shift the way that they're doing their business day to day. On off the back of that, Angela, I just noticed you're working on this your national water resources plan at the moment. How are you finding getting the, the various stakeholders' attention for that? In general, the stakeholder interaction has been very good on the plan. So we, we try to deal with a diverse range of stakeholders. We recognise that water resources planning isn't possible. Proper water resources planning isn't possible unless we give full consideration to all of the externalities. So we're trying to engage with government departments in terms of growth and economic development. Um, the foreign direct investment agencies such as the IDA, the environmental agencies, agencies such as our Environmental Protection Agency to get all of their considerations and build them into the water resources plan. So we're trying to look at all of the externalities that would impact on the way we can provide water services over the short, medium and long term. Into that as well, we're also looking at ways in which we look at our investment models. So in terms of how do we build those uh, long-term resilient pieces into our investment models? How do we see the value of progressing uh, large infrastructural projects when most models really gear towards capital referral? So it's looking at how we can bring in the social and economic costs into those financing um, models as well for our infrastructure and recognising that early investment gives the long-term 
benefits. So if we bring on uh, investments early, we get the benefit of those investments over a longer period of time. Looking at that within the plan as well, as we are quite financially constrained, we are looking at ways, again, as I mentioned, in terms of adaptive planning. How can we bring on uh, assets in a piecemeal way, but reflecting our long-term goals there? So can we have modular assets so you build the right thing in the right place, but have it on a modularized basis? And that way you can defer some of the capital which are investing in the correct thing. So in terms of stakeholder engagement, it has been very, very good. We also engage with consumer groups because, as Stephen was saying earlier on, it is the bottom-up assessment. At the end of the day, it is our customers who receive water and waste uh, water services. So those services have to be fit to address their needs as well and growing needs. So, again, the economy is tied to our assets our infrastructure base there, do we have enough capacity to allow for economic growth? So we've got to build all of those factors into our plan. I mean, going from looking at a national plan to, to looking at sort of individual cities or cities more generically, how do we, we try and make our, our cities fit for the future? You know, what are the key thing areas that we've got to look at? I think, you know, we're seeing certainly coming out of this pandemic, but even beforehand, I think we're seeing a few different areas that really need attention, especially in in cities in the United States, thinking about more affordable housing, obviously. So we're all stuck at home for the most part and very acutely aware of any sort of housing challenges, more so than we were before. So I think looking at uh, addressing more, more affordable housing for cities, more access to affordable housing certainly is one component. I think obviously broadband. I think a lot of cities around the United States at least are looking at um, how to expand access to broadband where we have, you know, students outside of schools don't have access to computers and to the internet. So I think that, you know, that component in terms of infrastructure will be a big piece. And, and one other piece that I think connected to water that that we haven't discussed, I think that, that will be a large focus area or, or hopefully will be, is our food supply chains. So I think, you know, we saw throughout the pandemic, the challenge and the inability to really shift and and be that kind of nimble reactor when it comes to our food supply chains. And I think that factoring in the additional layer of complexity around climate change and water resources and what that will mean for trying to encourage more sustainable agriculture policies and, and practices and up the chain, trying to have that access then, continual access to healthy food, I think will be fairly critical as well. So I think that there's quite a few sectors that maybe wouldn't normally be under kind of resilience that I think are very important and, and maybe arguably more priority right now, but hopefully they stay that priority. Stephen, what do you think are the key priorities that our cities, the challenges our cities are facing, and how have they changed over the last six months? Well, I have to say, I you know, sort of a couple thoughts. There's this concept of the our city, and uh, hearing Caitlin's response to your question really reminds me of that. This, this concept that across the arc of history, cities have been most effective when they have a fully functioning economy within an hour radius. So. Their residents are part of a functioning economy in that building block. And and I would say that in the near-term future, especially during the pandemic, when people are, you know, sheltering in place, there's a sort of sense like, wow, we have to really tend to our own, you know, I, I think that we got too global in the past 
say, 10, 20 years. But I, I don't think there's any going back. I think we are a global economy for certain sectors. But I think that some of the things that Caitlin described, like the agriculture, like there's some things out of whack, like we weren't really truly reflecting the cost of shipping things across the world and a sort of cheap labor that that really was, you know, social costs of that weren't really truly registered. So I would keep an eye on this concept of the our city. And I think what that means is that every global city has to think about its relationship with its close hinterland. And I see this this sort of geopolitical challenge right now where there's a narrative out there that cities and rural areas are somehow at odds with each other. And I think we have to rectify that narrative. And I think that we have to reject the notion that cities were the you know pandemic problem or that you know we need to vacate our cities because it's they're unhealthy. We have to I think what we need to do is sort of get that calibration correct, get cities to relate better to their hinterlands through infrastructure, through urban policy, through housing policy, economic development. And if we can do that, I've seen that city and state leadership have really jumped over the national leadership globally on on a lot of these issues in most cases. And I predict that, you know, cities will become the primary geopolitical building block in the world. Something that we, we have touched on, but maybe not gone into detail, is the climate crisis. We, I mean, whenever we talk, at the, whenever I have these discussions at the moment, we talk about the impact of the, of the coronavirus pandemic, and and then we always come to the point of let's making sure that the climate crisis is, is not forgotten. Angela, do you think that's a that's going to be a really big challenge coming out the back of the pandemic, making sure that the climate crisis is still very much top of the agenda? I actually think it may bring the climate crisis more to the forefront of the agenda because, again, I think there's sometimes a perception that climate change is something in the distant future, something that may or may not happen. And again, seeing things that actually have happened and the repercussions across our economies I think has opened people's eyes in in terms of uh, the shocks that actually will come to the fore. And in terms of climate change, I think there will probably be a focus now on more sectoral adaptation uh, to climate change. We've seen during the pandemic that everybody across the sectors has to work together to keep society going during these shocks. Everybody has to have their plans aligned in relation to this. So I, I actually think it will open the agenda more for climate change and climate disruption impacts. Stephen, is that a sentiment you would share there, that actually it's, it's brought it, things into focus? Yes, because I think, you know, it's been amazing for me to see, maybe from the U.S. perspective for a second, that for over a decade, there's been sort of high-level discussions about sort of infrastructure funding. And since the pandemic happened, to see the scale of uh, stimulus funding coming in to first take care of operational costs of, of a lot of our infrastructure and now very serious discussion about after the, the major national elections that an infrastructure stimulus bill will be a top priority. I think that's one indicator that it really has sharpened the focus on that. And I think there's versions of that happening in every country around the world, like really reckoning with how can you unlock that stimulus funding to make these programs happening to keep the economy uh, going in the short term. Caitlin, would, are you seeing signs that, that eyes have been opened? I would say yes, but I would be perhaps maybe more cautiously optimistic about that comparatively to Angela and Stephen. I think right now there's a risk of saying, 
we need to get the economy going and we need to, you know, stretch the dollars and therefore, you know, the top priorities might shift comparatively to, you know, what they were, you know, a few months ago in terms of what we spend that money on. And so, you know, certainly I feel like we're hopeful that seeing what stress and what risks really are to communities and to companies and to countries around the world will laser focus again on climate and saying, if we're going to build back better, then let's have it be a green recovery, right? Let's hope that folks um, adopt that, you know, sort of Uh, looking back at post-2008, and certainly that was a different crisis, economic crisis, but I think, you know, there there was skepticism about, you know, how to prioritize and what got kind of put on the back burner because of the global economic crisis. So we're hopeful that people are learning these emerging lessons learned, hopefully will inspire them to think more of a green recovery than anything else. But I would say I I might be slightly more cynical or, or cautiously optimistic than others about whether or not that will translate. Hopefully it does. And I think certainly the private sector as well is perhaps even more acutely aware of what they should be doing, which is perhaps a shift from where they were post-2008. So not to put all of this on the public sector, but certainly also to force the private sector to think about what their risks are and how they should be investing to come back stronger. Hopefully that's where I might see a bit more hope, cautious optimism. Well, I think cautious optimism is probably a very good good way to end things today. So I think we'll, we'll wrap things up there. Just for me to say a big thanks to Angela Ryan, Caitlin McLean and to Stephen Engblom uh, for joining me today. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please subscribe, leave a review and of course, tell your friends about Talking Infrastructure. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode. Until then, take care and goodbye.